All right, so here we are. If you've been tracking with us, we've been um, working uh, through a study that was originally titled uh, something about Nehemiah. We've been uh, working on it for six weeks, and we haven't yet been in Nehemiah. <laughs> As you may be aware, Ezra and Nehemiah are a continuous uh, narrative, really. It used to be one book. Uh, and it's got three movements, two of which are in Ezra and then one in Nehemiah. And we've been working through the first two movements. Uh, and the reality is the themes of those movement, movements are reflected throughout. There, there isn't a, a lot more in Nehemiah in terms of the big picture and what God's doing and how God does it. What we do have in Nehemiah is Nehemiah. Uh, and Nehemiah, like nearly every character in the story of God, including you and me, uh, is an unfinished work. Uh, uh, someone under renovation themselves. Uh, it's a fascinating reality within the story of God, how the people of God are so willing to allow themselves to be vulnerable, uh, to be seen uh, in the fullness of who they are. Just think about your own life and how difficult that is in your circle, in your sphere of influence. I'm not sure all of these men and women knew at the time that the writings that they were doing and the experiences that they were having and the journey that they were on with God was going to be uh, codified and passed down for thousands of years so everyone could see the sum total of their life. But uh, they did it. And... Uh, to our benefit, they've done it. And, they, and we have that in Nehemiah, uh, this man who is notorious for having ventured into the job of rebuilding the broken wall around Jerusalem. I'm going to read the entirety of chapter 1. It's not very long. It's only uh, 11, 12 verses, something like that. Um, but I'd like you to capture the whole thing. I might pause for just a second for some uh, recapping here. But uh, let, me, let me read to you from the book of Nehemiah, Old Testament. It's right at the end of all the history books, the first and second Samuel and Chronicles and Kings and, uh, and you have Ezra and Nehemiah. The words of Nehemiah is introducing himself, the son of uh, Hakaliah in the month of Kislev in the 20th year while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and I also asked them about Jerusalem. So, so here is uh, Nehemiah uh, inter uh, interacting with his brother and others that had come back from Jerusalem, and what he's referring to, right, that we've become familiar with is this situation where the Babylonians, uh, this, this empire, came in and crushed Jerusalem and, and deported the people uh, brought them and pushed them into Babylonia. And they sacked the city. They, they burned it. They, they tore down the walls and uh, the temple, their cherished center of worship. Um, and Nehemiah is asking his brother about the situation over there. What, what's, going, what's going on? What's happening with those who survived the exile? And they said to him, me, Nehemiah goes on, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. 
For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We've not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants. His prayer is going on here. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name, give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. He finishes chapter one with this. I was cupbearer to the king. All right, so what's going on here? This is happening to Nehemiah in 444 BC. It's been... 160 years, eight-ish generations since the original exile occurred. The return under Zerubbabel with about 50,000 people was nearly 100 years hence to this moment with Nehemiah, around 540. The temple was built, rebuilt by 515, 75 years before this moment. And Nehemiah is about 28. He's 28 years old. If this is me and I'm 28, it's 1993. And 160 years before that is like 1833 or 40 or something like that. This like me taking responsibility and confessing my part in the great potato famine of Ireland. <laughs> 185 years prior to 1993. I have direct descendants that immigrated from there to the, to the U.S. And it's like I'm suddenly finding out about this and taking my part of confessing my part in it. If you're 28 right now, it'd be like becoming aware of the overwhelming casualties of the Civil War and the consequences to your family, six generations removed, and your culpability in that war. Where has Nehemiah been? Hey, what's going on in Jerusalem with those exiles and such? And the brothers are making it sound like, it. well, the walls are trapped. And, and that's still the case. All these years later, they still don't have the wall done. But Nehemiah is just catching up, or so it seems. 
to a very significant occurrence that was generations before he was even alive. Ezra was even uh, younger than Nehemiah when he led the second wave in there. And that was 15 years ago. That was 12 years ago. Nehemiah was 15 when Ezra did that. But he didn't seem all that aware of that either. Nehemiah, what's going on here is Nehemiah is firmly embedded in the Persian regime and culture. He has very little connection with his past, with his history. He might as well be Persian. Many generations that he's grown up in his parents and his grandparents and his great-grandparents, and he's worked hard to succeed. It's no small thing to be the cupbearer to the king. This is a highly trusted position. When the, when the chief approach to assassinating a king or one of them would be poisoning, if you're in charge of the food and the drink, you're saving this guy's life on a daily basis. And you would occasionally taste the wine and the food to make sure you were doing your job right. He'd made something of himself. He's doing real good. Maybe I'm repeating here a little bit, but let me just say, like many of us, let me tie it to us, irrespective of his roots and the troubled past of his people, Nehemiah is caught up in the life of the culture around him. Largely unaware of the people of God, the mission of God, Think of everything that's been going on with his people, returning to Jerusalem, rebuilding the temple, reinstituting the law. He's out of touch, it seems, with the things of God, the people of God, the mission of God, the spirit of God. What we see going on here is a glimpse into a life that God has blessed to get the attention of. We, we are seeing God getting the attention of a young man whose past and whose history and whose family is connected to God in significantly, significant and profound ways to which he's largely unaware. God is getting his attention. And it should be an encouragement to us and a reminder to us. God is up to something. He is always up to something. And way more than we realize, way more than we realize, he's accomplishing his purposes, whether we or anyone else knows it or cares to even admit it. And even this 150, 200-year era to which Nehemiah is being drawn into for the last 40 years of his life, is only part of the ongoing and historic arc of God's creation to recreation story. And we're in the middle of this story of God who created all the cosmos and made it very good and right and perfect. And it came apart, and one day he's going to put it all back together again the way it should be. It is the Jewish term shalom, when things are 
the way they should be again. We're in the middle of that story, and Nehemiah is in the middle of that story, and there is something greater going on. We don't always know. It's safe to assume that even if you're actively at work in the mission of God as you understand it, that far more is going on than might you might even be able to imagine and that God might have a shift in purpose for you within it. People, uh, this is a common question and, and a totally understandable question. Like, why are we involved and invested in the ministries around our city uh, and even, maybe even more particularly on the other side of the planet when there is so much need in our own church or in our own city or in our own country? Why do we go so far beyond where we are located? And maybe experience has taught this more than us having a value before we did it. We did it largely because we feel called by God to do it. But once you go there and go places where you don't normally go, you see parts of God you would never fully understand. We see the way God works in ways that we don't see in our own spaces. We, we have a fuller picture of God when we engage with people and places and parts of God's mission that we wouldn't otherwise see. It's not just rewarding to be involved with the things that God's doing elsewhere, but it's eye-opening and it's perspective gaining. So we know Nehemiah as a wall builder, a former cupbearer and a wall builder. But as I was reading back through Nehemiah, uh, well, really for the last couple months, what continued to rise to the surface, the surface for me was this much deeper thing going on with this, with this 28-year-old high-ranking official. And in simple form, it's a, a firsthand view of a call to faith. He's being called to faith, maybe more, more so than he, or at least equally as much as he's being called to build a wall. He's being called, not just to a mission, but to real transformation. It's worth just pausing and asking the question, or considering the what if God might be trying to get your attention, where might God want to be, and through what means might God want to be deepening your faith? Or, or, or realigning your faith, or repurposing your faith into a new space? It's worth wondering what God might be orchestrating with 
what's going on in your life. Bad, good, or, you know, indifferent. It's good to assume. It's just good to assume he's doing something or trying to communicate something to you. So what I did here was I just kind of looked at, through this chapter, through that lens, and pulled out a couple characteristics of the beginnings of faith or the beginnings of a new faith direction. Here's the first one. He was curious. Nehemiah was curious. His brothers came back from Judah and he asked them questions. He asked them questions about the exiles and he asked them questions about Jerusalem. You know, the circumstances, there's a lot of things that we're not in control of in this life, amen? You got things that you're not in control of. <laughs> you can't Curiosity is not one of them. You can be curious if you want to be. It's within your power. Greater perspective is within your reach. And you don't have to sit around and wait for it to club you over the head. You just ask good questions. My father taught me the incredible power of good questions. It seemed like every day my dad was asking me or saying to me, I'm not sure you've asked the right question yet. What do you think is a great question? Dad, tell, how, how do I do this? What do you think? What have you learned? What have you uncovered? He said, you should always ask the other person, whoever it is and whatever's going on. You should always find out what their perspective is. Just say, what's your perspective? Great visionary leaders often find and refine their vision by being curious. It's the secret to understanding the future. Just ask a lot of questions. Trichler is like a question-asking ninja. <laughs> you know, Gary? I, I meant to bring it in. I carry around a pack of questions that are on a little, little, little silver ring. There's like six or seven pages, and they're five or six questions designed for different spaces of life, and they all came from Gary. So when I'm going to a meeting or I'm, I'm thinking about a particular topic, I will just turn to that thing, and there's five good questions I could ask about that to whoever I'm interacting with, questions are crucial. Everyone has a story. Everyone has a story that will surprise you. And people are involved with God in ways you have no idea, in magnificent ways. So, you know, part of what we're trying to do with this building is share the cost of it. Uh, we're, we're carving a new path here uh, for the church in general. The church challenged to have the same kind of spaces that it's always had. And maybe God's intention is for us to gravitate away from the spaces that we've always had. But in the meantime, it seems like there's a pathway where we could do it if we cooperate with others. So we have a counseling center that's going to be moving in on the second floor. And we've been looking for somebody to take this space once we gravitate out with it and end up on the other floor over there. And we've had a couple come and go. We were, remember, we were talking the Dublin Food Pantry, which would have been amazing. And we've got this other, this other opportunity with a, a small school. Um, fairly certain that they don't share a, a common faith with us. But that's not super critical for us. We want to see this space as uh, kingdom-oriented with the 
partners that we put in here, but we also see it as a way to engage with the community and to be connected with those who have a faith that's different than ours so we might influence them or um, whatever, you know, to push us into spaces to think about who we are and how we interact. And, you know, we just want to try to make room for what God's doing. <clears throat> so we've got this opportunity. We want the whole this whole area right here, which is what we were hoping for, not to have to break it up. But I have these anxieties, which I have around commitment in general. I've made maybe one commitment my whole life, and that was to my marriage. It's a good one. <clears throat> and that was rough. But <clears throat> I don't know. I just am I claustrophobic or something about commitment. And I thought, this is my wife back there, true story. It is a true story. I put my tuxedo on about 15 minutes before the ceremony started. And when I told my friend, my best friend, I was going to get my tuxedo out of the car, he goes, I'm going with you. <laughs> he, was, he, was, he was really worried. I love my wife. Best thing that ever happened to me in my whole life. It has nothing to do with her. It has to do with me. But as I thought about, I don't really know this guy, I should probably sit with them and um, we would be able to at least move into this arrangement with the common ground of a friendship. Uh, a mutual faith or trust, you know, um, uh, in one another. So we did. We had lunch just on Thursday or Friday, I remember. And um, we were talking, and he's wonderful, and uh, he's got a great vision, and he loves kids. And um, I was getting more and more comfortable. He sat there. It was a good, it was a good, it was a good choice, good decision to do that. And then... Um, I said, what, what are the other, what kind of values, where do you, where, where, how are you infusing, what values are infusing into the, the kids that you've got? And he said, well, one of them is community service. And I was like, huh, well, that's what, you know, we're, we're buying this building because we, we hope to be of service to our community. We hope that he goes, well, I'm glad you brought that up because we do a lot of things during the year. We, we want our kids to learn to appreciate their community and to serve it. And he said, like, for example, we do a job fair every year where we ask our kids, and these are elementary and middle school kids at this point, to um, sort of imagine a, a, a job that they will do when they, when they grow up or something that they, or maybe something they want to even try to do now. And they create their own little job booth, and they do a jobs fair with little kids. And they've done it in the past, and he said, in the past, we've had 800 people from the community come and visit and be a part of that. And we were hoping we could, like, use your building and your parking lot for things like this and other things. And in my mind, I was like, oh, you want to come in here and do a, and organize a lot of things that we, we want to do and organize, but you would do it, and we would just be a part of it and serving. And I thought, this is, this is what God's doing. He's, he is connecting us with some people and some groups that, that want to do exactly. And it did, how did it come? How did, how did I manage to discover another glimpse of what God might be doing with us? I just went to lunch and asked some questions. I was curious about him and what they do. And we are starting to see what God might be up to. Be curious Nehemiah was curious. God's up to something. And it may be intended to include you. All right. Secondly, uh, he was impacted. We are confused. We are confused by Nehemiah's lack of awareness. I mean, communications were pretty spotty and slow back then. But that is wow, right? But 
We are moved by his brokenheartedness. He's been comfortable in his high honored role in the Persian dynasty, maybe preoccupied by it. I don't know. I don't want to over speculate. I don't want to judge. He may have been a prayerful and patient person. And this is God's timing for him. I don't know. It, 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 it does seem like he's stunned by what he discovers. But his curiosity leads to an awareness, and then it, he begins to feel it. I don't know how you are with feeling the realities of what's going on in this life. I think we fall on a spectrum. Some of us are like, no, thank you. <laughs> I'd rather not think about that. And some of us feel things very deeply, whether we like it or not. It's vulnerable to feel. It's, it's vulnerable to allow yourself to be impacted, to see reality, to uncover uh, a need. We are made in the image of God. We have an impulse within us that is godly. We don't always live up to that. And we don't have it fully. But we, when we feel something, we often are moved by that feeling. And even that is vulnerable. If I feel that I don't really want to watch that or see that or go there because the need will overwhelm me and I know that I should do something about it and I, and I don't think that I can. I don't have the capability. I don't have the capacity. So I just keep my eyes shut so I don't see and I don't feel and then I don't feel overwhelmed and inadequate. It's vulnerable to feel. Feeling means oftentimes hurting, hurting on behalf of someone else, hurting in ways you've been trying to avoid or about situations you don't want to be involved with. But we see the move of God, the, 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 the building of faith involving both curiosity and a sense of internal turmoil, impact, feeling. What's moving you? The things that move you shift you closer and into the space of your calling. You, you can, again, go through the, 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 the characters and the, and the personalities and the, the folks of the Bible, and you will almost see, without exception, a call, a missional initiative being preceded by awareness and impact. I saw, I became aware of, I I. Suddenly, and woof, and that stirs us to action. What are you feeling? And a harder question, what are you resisting feeling? Because the call can be very personal. You might not be feeling a certain thing because the feeling that you have is um, something that's been done wrong to you. And the action will be forgiveness. 
or that you've done. And you just don't want to think about, oh, it's fine. I don't have to worry about that. But if you think about it too much, you realize, no, I really did hurt that person. And now I, I need to apologize. What, what it goes from that to, you know, whatever else? What are you resisting feeling? If you're not curious, it's pretty difficult to find your calling. It's pretty difficult to see where God is wanting to stir your faith and, and drive you. And if you're not feeling, it adds to the difficulty. This part of the process of discovering your calling, of applying your faith. He's moved for days. We can move right through that passage and go right from, you know, I was wrecked and then that prayer. But the reality is for days, he's been pretty precise and he is continues to be precise in this letter. And this is for days I was upside down. He doesn't even remember and the specificity of it. So I'm guessing it was multiple days where he's probably even confused by his own emotion. Have you ever been there? You're feeling something like, I don't even know why I'm crying right now, or I don't know why I'm so upset. He sat in it for days. He stayed in this uncomfortable space of confusion and brokenness, trying to probably figure out why he was hurting, why he was disheartened, why he was emotional. It's worth looking into. It's worth figuring out taking the time to figure out what you feel or what feelings you're avoiding, what emotions. It's also worth the time of when you do feel, allowing them to be more deeply understood. Don't rush it. And then it hits him. He suddenly grows up. He sees his part. He discovers a piece of himself his history, he, he is suddenly connected to his real past. He finds God in a very fresh way. And then what happens? This is the other reason we oftentimes don't lean into, don't ask questions, and don't explore our own internal reactions. Because what happens next, when it's God, is the light of exposure, the bright lights of exposure, come on, <laughs> right? When we're curious and we ask questions, we get answers. <laughs> when we explore our feelings, we uh, become aware of not only what's hurting us or what's bothering us or what's impacting us, but we become aware of ourselves. The, th the third thing we see from Nehemiah is he is open to God's critique. Like I said, sometimes we tend not to see. Sometimes we don't want to see. It's too real, it's too painful, it's too much, too demanding, too exposing. Opening ourselves to God's assessment is what you're doing when we pray, when we allow ourselves to experience what's happening in our life fully, and we put that before God, God moves in and turns on the lights and makes us aware of what's going on around, but his light is exhaustive and comprehensive. It turns on the light in our own heart, in our own mind, in our own life. 
Suddenly, we not only see what God's doing out there, we see what's undone in here, if we're willing to see. So what comes? A prayer of confession. He's curious, he feels, and he confesses. Unlike the examples we see of popular leaders, popular leaders and powerful movements who at times seem perfect, or at least they want to ex, you know, extend that view, God values authenticity and humility. He is equally concerned with the mission of healing your heart and developing your character as he is in accomplishing the mission he's calling you into. Let me read that again. He is equally concerned, at least, I don't even know what the comparisons are. Maybe it's more, but at least he's equally concerned with the mission of healing you, exposing what's wrong and in need and doing something about it, as he is in, uh, in developing your, as he is in accomplishing the mission he's calling you to. And that's rough. If you're going to follow God, you're not just going to accomplish what he calls you to accomplish. You're going to come face to face with your own shortcomings, your own sins, your own unfinished heart, and he's going to want to do something about it. The same thing happened to me both times that I walked into the buildings that we ultimately purchased, the one at Worthington in 2016 and this one a year ago. I got sick to my stomach. Like I walked in, I was like, oh no. We, you know, we look, we had been looking and lurking and searching and searching in both cases, and it was palpably evident to me that this was this was it. And I thought, oh, I'm gonna hate it, this process. Oh no. I know it, I know it's coming. And it's not just trying to raise money, trying to get things right with the city. I knew, I knew. I was going to have to lead through this. And I don't know what I'm doing. I'm not fully aware of how to solve this problem. And everyone is different. So when I walk into a big project like that and I'm, I'm leading, I'm like, oh, man, I'm going to find out what's wrong with me again. I'm going to have to see all my shortcomings. God is going to want to grow me up through this, and I'm going to have to do it publicly. No one else has to do that, God. <laughs> you and everyone else is going to see and experience what I don't bring. Yeah, I know the value that I bring to the table. I'm aware of the strengths that I have, but I know that God is not interested in just, you know, utilizing your strengths. He wants to 
builds you. And I know it's coming. I always know it's coming when we get involved in something big. And you should anticipate it too. It is not a super comfortable thing to be exposed and grown up by God, but that's what he wants to do. But here's the thing. He's not going to force himself on you. He's patient. He's long-suffering. He's merciful. He waits for an invitation. Look at David. David, King David. This is a rough dude. This is a war hero, a man's man who knows his place in the world, knows his place with God. He knows God's intentions with him. He's on it. And he says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Do you think there was an offensive way in David? When, when he says, see if there's any offensive way in me. No, he's like, you're going to, there is. You're going to find the offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. He must have revealed Nehemiah's part and contribution to the sin of his people, even though he could have argued no culpability for something that happened 160 years ago, Nehemiah is somehow seeing his part in his people's failure. And he repents and he confesses. So we need to do the same thing. I'm going to wrap it up even though I'm about halfway through here. And I, I don't know why I let you know all, all my inside stuff, but I cut this message in half last night, and it's still twice too long. <laughs> I don't know what's going on. Uh, we need to hear God's rebuke. We need, to, we need to allow him to search and find what's wrong and offensive. There's still something left that needs to be healed and fixed and forgiven. We need to confess and we need to repent. Stay in the word of God and approach it humbly and God will reflect to you what's right and what's wrong and how and who he is and how you're not him and how different and be with others. Look, if you're worried about discovering what might be wrong with you, just ask your friend or your spouse, they'll let you know. About two seconds. It's not going to be hard for them to come up with it. Find some solitude. Boy, our culture is afraid of solitude, man. I'm telling you, we do not want to be alone because I don't want to think about that. I don't want to go there. I want to feel that. I don't want to reconsider that. I don't want to know that I am responsible for something there. But find some solitude. Get in a group for this study that we're talking about, this all-church study, the relentless pursuit of, what, what is it called? Of the relentless elimination of hurry, right? This slowing down. <laughs> Pastor Justin asked in the staff meeting yesterday if it's okay to get that on audio and listen to it at one and a half times speed. <laughs> I see what he did there. <clears throat> 
If you're going to be on mission for God, let me read these things and lock it down here. If you're going to be on mission for God, letting his light shine into the world through you, it's got to shine into you first. Our primary role isn't to tell of the light or to just be light. It's to first to be an ongoing example of how to respond to the light. This is the most critical part of our Christian faith is exhibiting to the world around us, not where we have arrived, but how God deals with us as we are arriving and how we have not arrived. That is the power of the gospel, how God meets us where we are unfinished. The point of Christianity isn't to become so good that you're better than everybody else. The point of Christianity is to show everyone else that where you still come short, where you still are not measuring up, where you still are not the person that God yet wants you to be, that God is merciful and gracious and forgiving and loves you anyway, right? It's the mercy of God to the needy soul that is central to our message. This has to be central to our experience. We have to always be open to the critique of God and be willing to take a humble response. Yeah, let God's light shine, but first into you. So we see in Nehemiah a man of faith being born. He finishes with, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I think he's referring to the king. I was cupbearer to the king. I don't know how to read that. Why does he finish this whole thing with, I was cupbearer to the king? Is he shown off? Or is he saying, I was cupbearer to the king. Now I'm a servant of God. I don't, I don't know for sure. Or is he saying, wow, I was cupbearer to the king and that was that was all I was. It was so much. I don't, I don't know, but you can read into it. It's, you can feel him. This is, this is, it does feel very much to me like this is what was. And now, now look, I am now transitioning from this high-ranking, trusted, influential servant to the Persian king to a lowly servant, really, with much to learn and a mission beyond his competence and his character. But God is interested in growing him up. <clears throat> Skipping down to the very end here, see if this last sentence still applies. I think so. Don't ever be so busy doing the wonderful things of God's kingdom. Worshiping, caring, giving, studying, going, but miss. God's intention to grow our faith and to build a deep and healthy church. We have a lot to do. We have a lot. We want to be on mission. It's a very high calling for us to, to serve and to um, work for God and to uh, outwardly express. Um, we always want to do is allow as much opportunity for God to work within us too. So I think that's what we're trying to say here. Follow Nehemiah's example. 